Welcome to the Access VFX podcast, pursuing inclusion, diversity, awareness and opportunity in VFX, animation and games industries. Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, founder and director of Access VFX, bringing the visual effects animation and games industry together, working towards a shared goal to make our industry more diverse and inclusive by taking action rather than just talking about it. Hello, I'm Simon, founder and director of Access VFX, and welcome to season two, episode 13 of the Access VFX podcast. On each episode of the pod, we interview a different member of the VFX animation and games community and ask them a range of questions from the AVFX vault. Every week, we invite talented folks from the world of visual effects, animation and games, including heavyweights and those just getting started in the industry, and ask them about their journey from humble beginnings, big breaks and learnings, through to shamelessly mining their brains for career advice and their thoughts on how we can create a more diverse and inclusive creative community. For our 13th episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to industry legend Mark Pinheiro, a man who arguably has had the snakiest career journey on the podcast so far, often named by the people who know as the world's best VFX coach. We break down a lot on this episode, from growing up in Tooting, South London, his love for cinema from an early age, his recent master's graduation, congratulations Mark, his experience as a black man in the VFX industry, and his incredible 30 plus year career working on some of the biggest shows. We should add a trigger warning at this stage. Mark shares for the first time publicly the circumstances around the death of his father. It is a shocking account, but an important part of Mark's story that we urge you to listen to. We recorded this on Zoom a few days ago, and despite being one of our longer episodes, this is an absolutely essential listen that deserves that deeper dive. Anyway, enough from me. We very much hope you enjoy episode 13 of the Access VFX podcast. Hello and welcome to the Access VFX podcast, season two, episode lucky 13. It's me, Simon, and I'm joined today by someone we've wanted on the pod since we reconnected on 2020's BAME Industry Connect podcast series and as a panelist at our last in-person event with XVFX last year. From beginning as a runner and in the libraries of TV stations, our guest has worked for 30 plus years across TV, film and stage production for NBC, MTV, VH1, ITV, BBC and the Sci-Fi Channel. His VFX career has seen him on shows and projects with Important Looking Pirates, Lex Hag, Millfilm, Molinaire, Ardman, Dean Egg, One of Us, Framestore, Goldcrest Post, Pixamondo, NPC and Epic Games, among many others. His VFX credits include Guardians of the Galaxy, Tenet, Alien vs Predator, Captain Marvel, The Crown, Game of Thrones, The Witcher, The French Dispatch, along with numerous uncredited work as a visual consultant with Escape Studios on shows such as The Dark Knight, Chronicles of Nadia, Nadia? I'm going to say Narnia, I'm going to keep this in. <laughs> Various Harry Potters, among others. And following his recent stint at Framestore, you'll get to see his work on Marvel's Moon Knight this month. Also a VFX trainer and lecturer who has trained pretty much everyone in the industry. Also a director, actor, and has just passed his master's in screenwriting at Falmouth University. It's the mighty Mark Pinheiro. <laughs> I've, uh, I've got a coquettish little hand to my mouth there after being flattered by that Simon thank you very much it's officially the most prep I've put into any intro <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot and I could forgive my me fluffing my lines I'm not I thought I'm not I'm not starting that one again uh, we don't need to take two on that one that's great I can bear to hear that again 
We're good. Well, you, you've, <laughs> you've got it for forever now on Spotify and, and wherever else you get your podcasts. So all good. But welcome. Welcome, Mark. It's good to have Thanks you. Thanks for on having podcast. me, Simon. Thank you very much for this yes. opportunity. It's been a labour of love trying to get you on as well, Mark. We've had a few attempts and in classic visual effects artist style, it's been quite hard due to workload to get you get your time. So I'm very grateful to have this obvious chat to you. Thank but yeah, and MA, I mean, congratulations. I mean, I, I, we've been we've touched on this uh, in our various uh, catch ups over over the last uh, year or year, two years. Uh, so it's great to get to have this conversation where you passed it and you got it and you've got the you've got the letters at the end of your name and it must have been a, a, to a toughie to, to balance everything else. It was pretty impossible, I felt, trying to, it was difficult trying to balance a full day's work where you really put your back into it. And, you know, my position on the Moonlight project was quite high up in mm. post fees one of the more senior artists. And so, you know, you give a full day to that and where do you find the energy in the evening afterwards to, you know, be imaginative and knock out a couple of pages of, of, of script. It was very tricky. So... Yeah, it wasn't very easy. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I made it. It only took 30 years to, to finally do it, but it's over now. And I honestly, I'm 50 going on 21. It was an interesting week, two weeks ago, because I turned 50 and then four days late, confirmation that I passed my master's. So within, within a couple of days, I just felt like a completely new man. Incredible. Yeah, it must be like almost like the beginning of a new chapter now that you've got that under your belt. Yeah, 50 going on 21. That's how I see it. I like that. Benjamin Button. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome awesome so yeah great to have you on and, and i mean i was doing i you know, believe it or not i do a bit of research for these podcasts and uh aside from just looking on imdb and, and linkedin and yeah five years as a professional actor i've never really appreciated that about you mark that you used to act and and had to then because we talk a lot on the podcast about points in your career where you think you're going to do something and then you fully reskill to do something else and um, before we get into the access vfx vault questions I'd love to ask you what it was like reskilling from acting, you know, the big stage and screen world you're in to working as essentially a visual effects artist, to coin a phrase. I mean, how, how was that? What was that like looking back now? So the way I saw life 30 years ago was I had, I have a very peculiar mind and I realised that my attention and my focus could be given to something, especially it's something I discovered at art college. I could, I could be doing a drawing but then once I kind of investigated what I wanted to do in that piece of work, I never necessarily finished it because it was like I've already, I've already taken the yield or the boon that that opportunity had to offer. And so my focus would drift onto something else. And, and then once I spent time on that, you know, I, and that became exhausted, I'd move on to something after that. And so rather than fight this, I realised that my mind naturally wanted to multitask. And so... I saw life from a particular point of view where I have an idea in my head and I have a number of different ways to express or, you know, to express that idea. And it could be, I need to tell you something. I could tell you a story. I could be an orator or I could draw you a picture which describes a story or I could write it down and you can read it. And all these different ways of expressing it, all these different mediums, they're all really coming back down to one source. So I never really found it very difficult to, to, to hack change, if you like, to be able to do something different. And everything, although as we talk about this in, my, in this interview, although it sounds like I've done a myriad of different things, they all really, for me, are still that one same thing, which is essentially filmmaking or communication of ideas. So I never really found it that difficult to, 
to make the changes and swap around from uh, vocation to vocation. It's interesting. Uh, I guess all deeply rooted in storytelling, creativity, the arts, you know, like you say, it's, it's very varying degrees of multitasking and switches, but all within a similar realm. Is that fair to say? Absolutely fair. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we all do it, don't we? I mean, we could all be telling a story and then we, we become animated as we're telling that story. And we might sort of, you know, demonstrate the actions of one of the characters we're talking about in the story. At that point, you switch from being an orator to an actor, you know. So it's that thing when you recognise that you're, you're capable of doing that, that you then go, OK, maybe I can turn this into something, maybe making a living out of doing this and also keep life very interesting exciting and varied so yeah I was going to say that I mean it's definitely an interesting I'm talking about stories we talk about storytelling a lot on the pod as well around that lovely marriage of you know visual effects and the amazing craft of what we do and the incredible story one doesn't work in isolation it is that blend isn't it but you know your your career and your your journey is I mean again we've touched base through various access vfx events over the last few years and your story is so fascinating and, and the stuff you've worked on. I mean, I love that. I love that you put on your uh, LinkedIn that you're the uh, best VFX coach in the world, which I think is a fair, fair assessment. Something I'm going to argue with you on, on this, on this platform, but everybody's. I think, I think, I think what it says is that the most successful course of its kind it isn't as brash as boasting I'm the best. No, well, I like it. Somebody might say I'm the best and I, I hope they do, but. No, it's, it's, it's the most successful course of its kind. And that's, that was an easy win, I think, because mm-hmm. when I did at time, there weren't that many visual effects schools around mm-hmm. the world. And so you were immediately in the world super league of, you know, the Champions League of visual effects courses. Mm-hmm. It was just a question of making yours better than everybody else. And that, that to be honest, I didn't think that was a very hard task. It was a bit of an easy win, to be honest. And yeah, it was successful. Oh, we, we I met love you. That. You should have a listen to Lorraine Batter's podcast episode. She does name check you for, <laughs> for the, uh, being, being the OG back in the day. And she, uh, the OG. Into, I'm really the happy. Yeah, you know, I'm really happy about it. It's my proudest achievement, I think, out of all of the, all of the things I've done in my career. Thank yeah, you. Influence. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get into the questions, there's a few other notes I made. One was, I didn't know you were involved in the London Olympics. Uh, yeah with Danny Boyle back in 2012. Yes, so that was an interesting one. I left Escape Studios and was basically going out into the world to work again. And I was going out as a new cop and an opportunity arose through B. Harris. They got a strange cold call from China asking if they could send four compositors out to China to work on a 3D stereoscopic feature length animation and I thought, wow, chance to go to China. That's like wham, all the Beatles, you know. Um, so I thought, yeah, I'm definitely going. But then I also that also conflicted with the opportunity to work on the Olympics in a really small team with Danny Boyle and some of the guys from the Union Effects who he used to bring all his work to. But I, I chose China over Olympics. I was pretty sad about it because the China job didn't quite turn out to be what we thought it was. They were very misunderstood in what they needed and so we had to improvise but I mean that turned into a good thing because I ended up becoming a director for that for that whole film when I came back to London afterwards the good news was that the Olympic project was in terrible trouble and they still needed people so I got to have my cake and eat it and there was a few of us working on there mostly with the union effects guys and yeah we basically prevised the entire opening ceremony for the london olympics in particular doing the 
pixel the pixelization on the crowds you know how the, if you remember the, the crowd basically was fully that there was seats and that they, they the crowd was almost like had pixelization mm. became its own pixelization screen as it were and I where they basically that. had moving images happening all over the crowd and we basically designed and prevised all of that so okay. i'm pretty pleased 2012 wasn't a bad year that's a good one that's a great landmark for sure and god well you must have learned a lot on that as well yeah, I mean, what, what did I learn? I learned that a lot of my students are better than me. That's what it's all about, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, and I learned Danny Boyle looks like my father. He looks like a white version of my father. <laughs> wow. That's what I learned. Yeah. There you go. See, I'm just, we're only 10 minutes into the podcast, already learning so much, mate. <laughs> Amazing. And, and the last one I want to throw in, it's more like a, a geeky thing on my part. I love a pun. And I've always, and I've never said this to you, Mark, but I've always loved the, the Sex Pixels as a name in your company. Yeah. I just think it's genius. And I don't know why it does, and maybe you can explain, but it just captures your spirit, you know, almost. You're, you're the closest we've got to a johnny rotten in the visual effects industry and i just yeah. love that 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 name i'm just putting it out there thanks man it tickles me still every time yeah. i see it and it, it is it's punkish it, it does three important things for me it's the definitive noun it's got the, the word the in it it's got the word sex in it which is you know controversial and and, and everything else and apparently sex sells which i like and it's got pixels in it. And as long as I had a name that had those three things in it, I was happy. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a win-win. I hope you've patterned this all. Yeah. It's, I think it, yeah, it's mine pretty much. There are there are sex pixels out there. There are lots of other people using it, but there's the only one definitive, and that's that's us. That's right here, right now. Right Excellent. here. Right. Uh so I think we should get into the vault, Mark, because Time is limited and we've got a lot to get through. So I'm going right. to notice normally where the sound effect kicks in. So we're going to open up the, the access VFX vault. There, there it goes. And we're into, the, <laughs> we're into the questions, 21 in all. And uh, the first one is, where in the world are you and where did you grow up, Mark? Okay, I'm currently in a rented apartment in Bermondsey where I've lived for 30 years. I'm originally from Tooting, London in oh, South okay. London. Uh, our house was on the same block as the classic cinema mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit further down the road from there was the old Mayfair cinema. So in the 70s that, that area was predominantly an Irish community but by the turn of the 80s the Indian, Pakistani and Bangladeshi population began to rise mm -hmm. which you can still see now you know reflected yeah. in the high street stores even amongst all the gentrification that's happened since. I spent as much time out of the house as possible when I was a kid, pretty much keeping away from my mum, my brother and my sisters, playing football on the streets or out on my bike every day. Yeah, my happiest times were probably from about eight to 11 years old. When I was away with the Cub Scout troop I was with, the 15th B, Bats, basically sharing a tent with your best friends, farting and doing torch jokes with each other. And basically being looked after by my Arcala, who is this wonderful Irish lady called Joyce Grady, God rest her soul. I tried to catch up with her a couple of years ago, but she sadly died. She had an incredible altruistic nature about her, uh, along with another friend's mum at the time, who kind of kept me under their wing and tried to see if they could push me into professional football along with their son. So, you know, we used to go to trials together. And yeah, I suppose, but the highlight of, of my childhood was always the cinema because it was so close to us. First movie I ever 
saw there was Disney's Lady in the Tramp, double bill with Escape from Witch Mountain. We used, we used to join the queue when it actually reached their house because they used to queue up our street. So I remember we joined the queue for Greece in 1977, managed to get the last two seats in the cinema. I remember staying in the cinema twice to watch Superman the movie because it just used to rotate once it finished it started again and you didn't yeah. have to leave you could stay in there so I remember watching it twice coming out and thinking you can fly when you leave the cinema and uh, I regret falling asleep through Star Trek the motion picture unfortunately that one was a was a dull ride yeah yeah I'm not a massive Trekkie to be <laughs> fair either but yeah funny I, I remember we're similar ages aren't we Mark and I remember when you used to properly queue to watch a film I remember queuing in the Odeon in Leicester where I'm from Right. And we went to see Return of the Jedi with my mum, dad and brother. And we were like, we were in neighbourhoods. We weren't just queuing around the block. We were in streets. You know, it was literally endless queue. And then you had the whole thing where people would come out and you'd avoid all the spoilers because everybody was chatting. It was doesn't really happen anymore, does it? That kind no, it's of... strange, the whole blockbuster phenomenon. I mean, mm. of the 70s, we don't really see it anymore, do we, yeah? Yeah, there's no mania anymore. There's no like Jaws mania or when the first Batman movie came out or the Star Wars stuff. But yeah, there's a whole of the film-based podcast we could get into with, with yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great insight. And uh, I know Tutim, I lived in Ballam for many years, so we used to oh, well, knock about in Tutim a lot. <laughs> so uh, yeah, good times. I was going to say, uh, so, you know, it's a community that was was full of, uh, it had a great mixed uh, culture in Tooting, you know, although it was predominantly an Irish community, it was everybody really kind of mixed around and got along well. And my parents from British Guyana in South America, which is the only English speaking colony in the whole of the continent. So although I have like 100% Portuguese grandfathers on both sides, and the correct pronunciation of my name, I should say that now is Pinheiro. Neither myself or any of my family actually speak any Spanish or any Portuguese. So, you know, although I recognise and embrace my mixed heritage, my mixed heritage much more now as an adult who's grown up much more kind of worldly, I grew up categorised as a black boy from South London. And like, you know, most black boys, we were all born in South London Hospital and we all played sport every day because one orange black black and orange striker football, if you remember those, for 299, had the power... Yeah. So you entranced 22 kids of all shapes and sizes, didn't they? It was cheap. Good fun. There's it, definitely a way, a way to bring bring us together. You know, just, yeah. just chuck a ball in the middle of a field. and There you go. That was all yeah, we needed. Exactly. Every Sunday we used to have it. We all, all the, always get all the dads and all the kids out and we'd, we'd play. I wasn't even that even into football, but we used to, yeah, have proper, like, full-blown, limited time matches. It's crazy. Well, it, it, was, it was like the FA Cup every day. <laughs> Football was math, yeah. Why is it Panini football stickers and all that kind of madness? All of that, yeah, I loved it. So moving into the next question, Mark, you know, and again, builds on what we're talking about is, you know, the, the three words that describe you. It's a bit of an interview question, but it's always an interesting one. See how people break this one down. Well, yeah, look, I can. There's obviously three words is really limited. Let's have a go. I'm gonna go with brave, right? And I'm gonna say that with 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 reasons to back it up. But I am. I've noticed in, you know, in my life that I am prepared to go where angels fear to tread, whether that is through stupidity or, or, you know, being brave, I don't know. I will happily breach the unknown and venture into uncharted territories, I've noticed. The reason for that is because I think I've realised my whole personality might be based on the character from the book, from the first book that I uh, was ever bought, which was, <coughs> excuse me, Mr. Impossible, 
from the Mr. Men series, if you oh, remember okay. that. Yeah, I do know. Well. By Roger Hargreaves. Yeah. Uh, and you'll understand more why I say that as, as this interview progresses. But yeah, it's strange. Every time I look back, I think to myself, I always wanted to do the things that people didn't want to do or people said couldn't be done. You know, nobody I grew up with dreamed of a career in film or television because the word was that you stood no chance of even breaking in. You know, just music and sport for black people is what we had on offer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to have a go. You know, and then, you know, you look at teaching, you know, nobody wanted to teach because of fear of public speaking or because of the stigma of the role or if they would might reveal how little they actually knew about what they were supposed to know, you know, and I thought to myself, right, well, then if nobody wants to do it, you know, nobody wanted to go to China, so I'll go. And then, you know, more recently, nobody really wants to stand up and represent like a, a genuine, honest voice for the black experience out there in in this industry so again you know i i kind of step to the fold and that's that sort of seems to be me to a great deal I, I seem to be willing to stand in front of everybody and take the blows and i i think i know i think i know now even listening to myself why that might be i think i could just maybe take it more than others i'll explain later you'll understand so i think brave is definitely one i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna take I'm going to take with me there. <clears throat> uh, shall I go for my second? Keep them coming. Yeah. Go for it. Right. So I think hilarious. I think I'm absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I, I, I warn you now. I mean, to be me, I've had to develop a pretty sophisticated sense of humour as a survival mechanism where you can think fast and improvise. So I've sharpened my tongue so that I can shoot from the hip. I'm fast and loose when I need to be. You know, I discovered wit from an early age and sarcasm growing up as a teenager as to be used as subtext to say what you mean without really saying it, if you know what I mean. Yes, and, and then I suppose irony came later in my 20s as you develop wisdom and you begin to take, you know, wisdom begins to take hold, I suppose, and you start to see the world from more than one point of view and all the conflicts that exist between it all. And I think, you know, that's where you, you start to appreciate irony. And I think, you know, I live within that somewhere. I think I find my home within all of that. It stops you taking life too seriously. It helps you to manage expectations and such, I think. So sense of humour is a big yeah. one. And then this one, which everyone's going to go, Ooh, I'm going to put it in there really just because I want to talk about it. And that's sexy, right? I'm going to say... Do it. <laughs> someone's got to be sexy, right? Yeah. I mean... I'm going to say this only because I want to talk about it, though. Yeah. I don't think I think you know I don't think that people know how to handle when someone is being sexy or coming on them, mm -hmm. and I find it funny. It turns them weak at the knees, and if they're not comfortable and it's unexpected, you know, it can make someone really defensive and just provoke all sorts of irrational behaviours or embarrassment, etc. I think we all know what I mean. You know, it happens to all of us when we like someone, and the fact you know the fact, that fact is brought to light, and you have to either mm -hmm. face being liked or or rejected. You know, and I get that stare a lot you get from people when they get hit with a thunderbolt and I see it in their faces and I get that a lot. And I know it's because, you know, there's something I'm doing or saying or being that surprises them about me. It's just nice to think that you're being sexy. So I'm, I'm going with that. I'm owning it. This is officially my favourite three words on the podcast so far. I told you I was hilarious. Well, I always knew you were hilarious. <laughs> I mean, some argue that being brave and hilarious is also sexy. So, you know, you've got this whole like triangle of words, sense. you know, you know, blend, blending. But <laughs> I think that's great. I love all of that. And I would agree, like the idea of, uh, I love the Mr. Impossible thing. I mean, I'm a, I was a big Mr. Man fan in, back in the day and I, I read all the books to my little boy now. 
it's such a great great series but i just love that i love how you based your life on that mr man and yeah, i know this story well and it's it's all about just saying yes to everything it might be that yeah i don't know if i base it on that or if it just got into my head i mean mm. i absolutely loved that book when I was a kid and, you know, Mr. Impossible standing on his head, I wanted to stand on my head, you know, it's like, yeah. I suppose I just adopted those traits without realising it, it just seeped into my DNA. He was the best Mr. Man. He, he was the, the best he, Mr. He had, Man. He had the top hat, he had the, the whole vibe, he, you know, he was kind of a lilac purple colour. Nothing, Very nothing got in his way in life, he was fantastic. Well, all the others were just like, oh, they're angry or they were grumpy or they were happy and he was like, just <laughs> bonkers, madcap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I love that. I love that. And I think there's something in that about just saying yes stuff. And obviously I know that, you know, when we got you involved with the, the podcast series back in 2020, that you were, you know, weren't sure about it at the time, but you did it. If that, is that fair to say? I remember the conversation. You're absolutely had. right. I mean, so I don't know if you remember the long pause when you posed mm. the first question and there was that long tumbleweed silence until I mm. went, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to start just to make sure we got everything going on the line. You know, it might be my age, it might be my experience, but somebody had to, had to lead the lead the charge and again you know it was one of the times honestly I was very it was incredibly frightening to have to speak on that I don't know if you remember we got more and more comfortable as time yeah. went on but it was an absolutely frightening position to be to actually be invited to talk about those issues that yeah. you allowed us to talk about there particular time as well I mean it was wow a, it was yeah. it was a big yeah I mean I, I remember the conversation we had I remember I was walking about as, as I did during lockdown on my phone calls walking around the garden having chats and yeah we broke it we chopped it up for a while and I, I knew what that what that conversation meant for obvious reasons and how daunting it was and thank you yeah. for doing them because you're, you're brilliant on those so, well I thank you for, for for letting me have that opportunity because now I, I don't want to stop well we should bet we better get the links in the show notes for this podcast so if nobody's listened to those podcast episodes you absolutely should because they didn't pull any punches, did they? I mean, I thought yeah, it was a really, really, obviously it was an important conversation, but I think the way it was handled and delivered by all, everybody on that, that episode, two episodes, it was, it was, it was a conversation that had to, had to happen, particularly through the lens of visual effects as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still, it's a conversation that still has to happen. So Absolutely. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. It was good to get the ball. you got the ball rolling. Amazing. That yeah, was good. It was, it was worthwhile for sure. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to that, but I want to talk about what inspires you. Next question, Mark, what's the inspiration yeah. factor? Again, so it's, it's, it's picking up, I think, from the whole Mr. Impossible thing. I think it's the initial, initial, immediately it's the challenge to achieve the impossible. I think that inspired, I think that's my thing. Right. I, you know, I heard of Michel Gondry and he's, he's inspired by the idea of infinity. There's a great story where, where Michel Gondry's teacher wanted to describe how big infinity was so she drew a line from her blackboard off the blackboard onto the wall <laughs> off off the side of the wall onto another wall and then she went out the door and then she didn't come back <laughs> and that's and that that blew his mind and that was how and he's every forever he's been inspired by the idea of infinity i think i'm inspired by the impossible and and other things as well i mean the idea i could become more than just, for instance, a stereotype or a statistic, or as Russell Brand describes me in his autobiography, a chancer. You know, mm. I like the idea of defying those expectations. I am definitely, definitely inspired by love and being in love. And I mean, that is an incredible feeling, you know, like when you 
you meet someone that you think you're going to get you're going to get along with and everything and you it's almost like all your senses come to life you know and and, and every, all your problems are lifted and, you know so being in love and love in general i think is a massive inspiration and then of course there's the dark side of things you know fear of failure i have a brother who is crippled by that his whole entire life and it's something that when i see i run away from it's almost like it's like a leper or something i don't want it to to infect me i have to go in the other direction yeah. deadlines can be inspirational they can be they can also be stressful these days i grew up always wanting to change the world i'm not sure i'm as idealistic as i am now but that that drove me for the majority of my life the idea that we have the power to change the world i think that, that carried on all, all the way up until maybe during lockdown when maybe i started to take a different point of view on things I love the idea of magic and the power of magic, not parlor magic, but old fashioned magic with a K, the idea of, of working with the consciousness and what's possible there. I, I think that's incredible. And although this sounds contradictory, family still inspire me. Injustice is a big, big one that will get me off my ass. And, you know, saying what is unspoken or needs to be said. I think those are the kind of things that generally occupy my mind on a daily basis there's a lot in there and all, all brilliant and I, I again go back to the impossible thing you know, you know a challenge to to achieve the impossible i think is another great analogy for creativity and just you know problem solving and just you know finding a solution you know nothing's impossible i love that approach yeah i think if you if you adopt that approach you do you can deal with life if you do feel that you can you know can achieve what you thought you couldn't <laughs> yeah. if you can excel beyond your known potential self-belief right yeah so the next question i'm thinking of changing it so the, the, the official question is explain what you do for a living to an alien but the more conversations i've had on this podcast it feels like it's explain what you do to sorry not what you do explain what you do for a living to your your parents or to you know elder states people you know i always find that's probably even more interesting but oh, let's stick shame. let's stick with alien because yeah you're a man who knows a, an alien versus a predator so well, i'll tell you what i wrote for fun because you know if it's an alien what's he doing here what's he she doing here they must be pretty smart and if they especially want to have a conversation with me so i said i seduce the consciousness into believing in certain realities using a combination of cognitive linguistics and structural forms that become synergized using a sophisticated form of two-dimensional magic where moving image sequences are manipulated to create a visual form that supports the telling of a narrative and the provocation of emotion. Oh my God, that's amazing. I started, I started taking notes and I'm like, no, I can't keep up. That's, that's, that's too, that's too highbrow. That's I mean, amazing. To be honest, I, said, I will add to that alien that the result is not dissimilar in theory to their ability to hide from us for so long. I love that. It's pretty much the same thing. That's officially the winner so far. <laughs> so back to, back to life in Tooting, Mark, what did you want to be when you grew up? What was the, what was the ambition? You know, were you inspired okay. by cinema to do what you do now or was it? Yeah. It's a big one for, for me to talk about here. My, my story's harrowing. I will, I will warn everybody now about what I'm about to say. It's a harrowing tale. Um, 
But I didn't intend to become a filmmaker initially. Like most kids, I thought I was going to win the World Cup for England. Back then, all you really wanted to do was, you know, you wanted to fly high and soar as fast as you can and emulate your heroes. You wanted to become something great and make your father proud after all the effort they told you they went through to emigrate over here, you know, to give us an opportunity. And, you know, you looked at your heroes. My heroes on a football pitch and it felt all right to be patriotic then. You know, when you're young and the world is innocent and you didn't know anything about colour, you know, patriotism felt fine. It's only once you're, you're made aware that you're, that you're black that you start to see that it also has a bad side or an extreme side. So <clears throat> as I was younger, I was a successful sportsman and I excelled at both football and gymnastics. My physical appearance in my school transfer report to secondary school was described as robust which I'll never forget that. Um, Give me one of your three words. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? How can an 11-year-old be robust? I was, I was also a talented artist, see? You know, I won competitions. I drew a poster for the Metropolitan Police that showed three policemen in a lineup, And, you know, I remember I managed to get the facial features of the white and the black and the Chinese officers, kind of probably stereotyped it. But anyway, you know, kind of managed to get it in there. And I often sort of drew posters for the school events. And I was the fastest kid in my school. So all these things I had going for me. Meanwhile, my brother wasn't allowed to move away from, from standing against the wall at schools since his first days in the infants because he didn't play well with others, you see. Right. And he basically grew up standing against the wall all the way through primary school, all the way through secondary school until he was 16 without really integrating and, and, and doing anything. And to be honest with you, he's still doing that now at 53 years old. So he wouldn't, couldn't and didn't do anything and absolutely resented my success and whatever support my father showed towards me. Wow. He saw all of that showing favoritism. Now, my sisters who basically came to live with my parents after being fostered from, from, from a young age, they were brought back into the houses just before their teenage years, but they were pretty much put to work. And they hate just working the house almost, you know, while my mum was doing her night work and my dad was, was doing his engineering and his lecturing, my sisters basically had to run the house. And it was almost like being slave driven, to be honest. Now, when I was 11 teen and my, my dad said that he would apply to Fulham Football Club to inquire about me becoming a ball boy, it was on hearing that, that my brother had enough and then the next day when we both got escorted back home from school to be told our father had been electrocuted he oh tells me to shut my mouth if I know what's good for me <laughs> now I missed two months of school and my PE teacher came around to the house with an invite for me to trial out for Lily Shell where the FA football school the British Gymnastics School were based where the family wouldn't have to worry as I would have received board and tuition fees all paid for by the state. So it's basically Hogwarts for sporty kids, right? <laughs> and it seemed like, it seemed like, as you would imagine, it's an easy yes, you know, for the family to unburden themselves of their show of, their show of brother, as it were. But with my brother and sisters, you know, the lunatics now in charge of the asylum, they had every opportunity to retaliate finally and demonstrate their narcissism in spite of me from doing something I enjoyed so that I could feel what it was like to be denied like they were. So that day, after my teacher was told to leave and go away and they weren't interested in the offer, 
my brothers and sisters took me upstairs and beat the shit out of me proper gangster style yeah. and threatened me if I ever told anybody what they'd done that they would kill me so it was in that moment while I was picking myself off the floor with a bloody nose and everything else and I remember I wasn't crying I remember I was just wide-eyed and throbbing from the pain yeah. that that point I realized I was never going to become a footballer and so instead, I decided that I was going to tell the whole world what they did by making a film about it and what how they really did to my dad. And I'd already fallen in love with film, like from watching Empire Strikes Back three years earlier. It was in that moment that I decided I was going to be a filmmaker. Oh, I mean, that's a, that's a story. I had no idea, I mean, that you even experienced that, Mark. I mean, I know we've, we've only known each other for a few years, but. I guess it's not, not something you just drop into conversation, is it? That's No, and I've never told anybody this. And I'm basically, people will know me, they'll kind of, people know me, they'll, they'll make a lot of sense to them because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're always kind of wondering and asking why, sometimes being polite enough not to ask too much. But, yeah. you know, for those people who know me, it's going to make sense. I mean, I spent the next five years, and I know I'm saying this for anybody else out there who ever went through this, but I spent the next five years basically being tortured but they kicked me out of school as soon as school finished. They left me a bit of money to pay my rent. Otherwise, it would look weird, you know. And when I finally walked out the door, my sister asked me if I had anything I wanted to say. And every time I opened my mouth, she said, that just cost you a thousand pounds. And I'd say something else. She said, that just cost you another thousand pounds. And she kept telling me that each time I opened my mouth to say something, she took away a thousand pounds every time I opened my mouth until I learned to shut my big, clever mouth. So I had my say, nevertheless, paid the bill and left. And little did they realise, giving me my freedom was the probably the second best thing that ever they ever did to me. How did you? What what support did you have from anyone during that? So this is frankly horrible time. This is the problem. The problem was I was imaginative and I was creative, and so my family developed their strategy was to basically develop a create a reputation around me, whereby anything, anytime I said anything, it was you know Mark and his crazy imagination Mark's very imaginative mind blah 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 this kind of thing so basically they, the idea was that you won't believe anything I had to say if I did say it, I was lying or whatever you, you wouldn't believe the truth it's funny isn't it I mean my brother tells people now I mean how he how he saved my life here's the irony of it all you know how he saved my life and I wouldn't be alive without him but you can't tell anybody how or why that's the case was there any justice for your dad I mean was there any no, Is there the any recognition that the story reached the papers? I've still got the clippings, an incredible obituary written out for him. A thousand people turned up at the funeral. We did a total Harlem street funeral, walking through the street, stopping traffic. But there was there's been nothing that's been said because essentially I, I've just had to for 50, basically I've kept my mouth shut as as I guess I was threatened to, and it was only during lockdown that I had no new appointments in the diary. And so I found myself reflecting back on my life and I started to, and I knew this was always in the, on the back burner. This one was always, you know, in a cage. And I decided to, was reaching out to old childhood friends that kind of, you know, sort of resuscitate this whole thing. So, you know, and I used my degree pretty much to kind of write about it as much as I can use it as a kind of therapy to get it all out there. So, um, no, I mean, that's, that's basically how I've had to deal with it. This is really the first time I'm starting. I want to be able to start talking about this more now. 
Well, thank you for being so honest and, and vulnerable by, by, by putting that out there, Mark. I mean, it can't, can't have been easy if that's the first time you've, 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 you've put it out, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's probably why we took so long to uh, actually have this meeting in the first place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes sense. Makes sense. I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to the subject, Mark. And uh, yeah, I feel it almost feels wrong to move on to the next kind of vacuous question from the atmosphere effects. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. So the next one is more about you know, the educational route you took, whether it be whether you want to talk about your recent studies or whether you want to talk about your early studies. What made you choose the college or university that you went to? OK, look, this this is the this is the fun bit, <laughs> because my story is incredible in that sense. But basically, I didn't make it to uni when I was 18 or 20, like everybody else. So the joke was that I aced my GCSE art course and I earned a pass to get onto the first 3D course at Suffolk College in 1988. But I declined instead to do something more academic and vocational as advised by my sister, which looking back, I see now was probably suggested out of spite. I hope I hope that missing that wasn't a mistake. I reckon it pretty much was one of the bigger mistakes, one of the first big regrets of my life, that one. Mm. So instead, I did a big tech national in business for finance and I learned how to type 100 words per minute and put together a business plan and how to run a company. And in my own spare time on the side, I, I put together a portfolio that got me to Chelsea College of Art to do another BTEC in art and design. Now, at the same time, I trained in film on the side. So my dad was a lecturer at South Thames University, where I took film studies A-level. And, and, there, and then that's what I did there. And then I did practical side of filmmaking at the Art Centre under the tutelage of a gay avant-garde filmmaker called Paul Bush. He taught me how to work Bolex cameras and, and edit on a steam bag. Uh, and as I was finishing up doing all of those courses and I was about to go to uni once again, again, my jealous sister took whatever money I had left in the bank because she had, it was a joint account, to teach me a lesson. Once again, forcing me into work instead of going to uni and denying me the opportunity to have something again that I wanted. So from 20... I didn't go uni, instead I started work. I switched from studying during the day and working in the evenings to support myself to working in the day and studying in the evenings and enrolled in a screenwriting course at Birkbeck University, but dropped out. So I didn't believe I was being taught anything worthy of getting me a job. So it turns out that this course was reputed to be the best out there and was written, you know, written by the guy who wrote the classifications for film that has been adopted by the BFI. So... Um, I had to actually wait 30 years before I finally got to go back to learn this at university four years ago. And luckily, the university based its whole curriculum on the book that was written by that guy who designed that university course. So, you know, it's, it's amazing that I actually kind of got to fix that regret <laughs> eventually uh, and finish that course, finish my learning off at a master's degree level. So, you know, that's mm. that's why the last two weeks ago was absolutely fantastic for me because it was a real sea change moment. God, yeah. It's almost kind of like a, we talked about earlier, like the end of a chapter, a massively long chapter from those early days of starting that course and then going back to it these recent years to complete your MA. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. But, you know, when you, as, you, as I say, like in order for people to truly understand where the motivations come from it's quite important for you to get a bit of the background so you can understand mm. why it was that I've never given up yet because there's something that I need to do here you know there's I gave myself a calling in life that I need to see through brilliant and and yeah it goes back to what you said earlier about just kind of 
multitasking, switching, doing new things, saying yes to everything, you know, you know, and rolling with, rolling with the punches along, along the way. I mean, quite the journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a lot of hat changes, which you'll, you'll hear more of in mm. the next question. If, if we're keeping it in sequential order here. Oh, we um, always do. Don't worry about that. We're predictable <laughs> it, as ever. It's, 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 it wasn't easy, which is what you're going to hear next. If you ask the question. We'll be remiss not to ask it. Yeah. Oh, surely we don't send these questions out in advance, Mark. Come on. How did you break into the industry? Let's plug that one from the ether. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, basically, people need to understand is everything I've ever learned or studied, I've tried to consolidate in a professional capacity. So it didn't go to waste. It could be recognized on the CV. That's the first thing. And any, and I give that as any advice to anybody. Don't waste your time. Make it count. So look, a long story, but I'll lay it out for you because it's important for people to see just how windy a road can get when giving up isn't an option, all right? So let's go through this. Let's rattle through this, Simon. Yeah. In 1990, I began working on no, no to low budget film sets as a boom operator. I worked in video stores, just like Quentin Tarantino's story, and watched everything the shop had to offer. When I finished working at one shop, I left and I worked, and I worked in another one and watched everything they had, and then I left there. Right, so by 1991, I was with Paul, as I mentioned, shooting my own stuff on Bolex cameras. By 1992, I became a runner in Soho at Dubs on Poland Street. The next month, Flame arrived. The first Flame arrived in Soho, and I wanted to get on one so badly, I remember, which to this day I still haven't even done. Gareth Parry at Polly must be laughing hearing this. And that was, that was really the first time I, I got my experience of Soho and realised how unwelcoming it could be. Now, in 1992, I used my video shop experience to get a job running the library at NBC Super Channel, where I met Greg Nice, he goes by now, who gave me the chance to moonlight as a production assistant on his show, The Scene, which was basically a TV version of The Face and ID Mag, where we grabbed the first UK interview with Bill Hicks, and he gave me the chance to produce my own features on Manga and the Universe Festival, which later became known as Tribal Gathering, if anyone remembers mm, that. Yeah, with uh, Mixmaster Morris as my host, and I got exclusive interview of Aphex Team spitting orange pips at my, my camera, which we didn't even use in the end. And I used to, back then, you know, it's funny, like Take That used to visit the channel every week. It was the only time they could get exposure. And Robbie Williams used to basically push his face up against the little glass, you know, inset in my library door. And he used to window lick every week. He used to do that. Like a special needs kid. I'm not joking. <laughs> in 1993, I got sacked from the library. And it wasn't really like I'd done anything wrong, but they were doing a... They were literally doing a cleanse and they didn't like me and they got rid of me. They just concocted whatever story they wanted. And anyway, I applied for a set designer job for the BBC. And the entrance exam at the BBC was really interesting because it was an IQ test. I don't know if anybody's ever gone through a job at the BBC and if they still do that, but it was an IQ test. Wow. And I ended up becoming one of the one of the nine people out of the 550 that made it through to the interviews. And, you know, during the interview, I remember correcting so many answers to their questions, but still I ended up coming only fifth out of the three places on offer. So I didn't get that, which is why I'm talking about. But basically I was still out of work in 1994 and I joined the Panico Film Workshop, which was by Bob and Julian Doyle, two brothers who were part of the main crew for the Monty Python film productions. Uh, and that's where I continued my film training. You know, we had people there, we had Terry James's kid there on his Avid. I looked after Julian's Ari BL camera that shot the Python films. 
Terry Gilliam was always in and out of there. Some of the productions I worked on, I worked on Idris Elba's first acting job with and met Io Davis on that production as well. And, and then a few years ago, strangely enough, I found myself working on Idris's directorial debut, Yardi, which he... Um, yeah, of course, I saw that on your IMDb. Yeah, it's funny because we so strange bumping into him in this way all the time. And then, you know, and then it was on my birthday that he decided to premiere the film and he got on stage on that day and proposed to his, to his makeup lady and married her. <laughs> so that was bizarre. In 1994... Anyway, after that, in 1994, I basically got invited to work at MTV by Colin Riley. Might as well give everyone their name drops. It's a library for the launch of VH1, and I worked a seven-day fortnight, which gave me time off to work on film sets to clap a load in a camera assistant through Panico. It was while I was at VH1 that I pitched an idea to make my first promo with an with a inter called Mick Arnold at the time, which went on to win a Promax Gold Award now. If Tim Robinson or Ed Tiffin or anybody from Promax is listening, I'd really like to receive my trophy. It went into the trophy cabinet at MTV and I've never touched it even today. Promax only have digital records now from 1997. So although you can get replicas of your trophies, they have no record of my win in 1996. I'd love that to be changed. Yeah, so yeah. In nine, and you know that that injured me and my chances because I had no proof of what I'd achieved, so it was a real problem. But nine ninety six, I had enough of the library, and I moved into production. And I got there by pitching an idea for Reclaim the Streets. If anybody remembers that, it was yeah. So basically, it was about cyclists trying to be recognised and, and appreciated, you know, for for having used the roads alongside cars, basically. And Reclaim the Streets were planning a roadblock party around Waterloo Roundabout. And so that job, that pitch got me into the scriptwriting department where I worked with a chap called Sherwin Beckford, who deserves a mention, who I teamed up with to go to New York to be Ronnie Spector, if he remembers that, which is maybe the most rock and roll thing I've ever did, probably. If you, if you exclude walking away drunk from an introduction with Prince and Naomi Campbell at the VH1 launch party. Pretty rock and to, roll. To collapse at a table with Jules Holland. How's that? <laughs> it's just too many name drop it i can't cope my head's gonna explode too many notes to take i'm only gonna give you the 90s because the rest of it's boring but i then moved into an experimental department at mtv and this was an this was an that tried its hand at investigative journalism it was run by a guy called matthew bowes who basically used to run the, the tv show the word and what we did is we basically got under the skin of Britpop a little bit and you know what it was all about and motivations and everything else and it was in that same year that I started acting. And I eventually left MTV to pursue that. It was while I was an actor, I began learning cinematography and tried my hand at music videos, but, you know, trying to produce music videos for underground electronica acts that pretty much didn't get anywhere. And I started a collective that year with my housemate, Andrew Dobson. I saw us making visuals, documentaries as a freelance director. We ran a club in Soho and eventually launched an electronica outfit called Digitonal that's released a few albums and still doing its bit out there. When the acting finished two years later, I finished, I was, I finished that and I was one of the co-founders of a theatre company called Hydra, Hydra Theatre Company, which became the biggest drama troupe in London. And I, I think we still got the money in the bank account today, like if we ever wanted to fire that back up. It's interesting thought. And it was here I was introduced to Russell Brand who together with Andrew and John Rogers, we formed Soapbox Cabaret, where we performed comedy and political satire. And we all lived together for three years. And you can read all about that in Russell's autobiography. I won't bore you with that. 
And those, those last years in the nineties, I pretty much gave up on video production work for a little period, and instead teamed up with a guy called Trix Mendez, where we began putting together our advertising book as a creative duo, which led to an interesting Adbusters magazine and the creation of uncommercials and advertisements, and then all of that evolved into virals, which everybody knows. Um, and you know, so I always had a problem working. I love the craft of advertising. I have a problem with its application. So I love the strategic thinking and you know the, the copywriting and everything else. So but this found doing uncommercials gave me an opportunity to find a place where I could express that creativity, but I did it with an anti-capitalist sentiment, which is pretty much where I was about at the time. So I didn't really make money. By 2000, I was so poor, begged my sister, the one who took all my money away from me, to give me back some of my money she stole from me so I could retrain on the on the first VFX course of its kind at the NFTS, which was the finishing school. It was an experiment that National Film TV School wanted to try out to see whether or not they could make this visual effects kind of training centre thing work. And it was there that I trained in compositing and after that, I got my first job at Mill Film. So that's how long it took to kind of get in there. And when you think about the fact that my first issue with Cinefix was 1989's The Abyss, that's how long I've been wanting to get into visual effects. That, and I mean, we talk a lot, again, on this podcast about, and I'm a big believer in how Career Snake, but I'll challenge any future guests to top that that journey that's uh that's an amazing amazing journey through the 90s and some some key key moments there as well and figures right yeah it wasn't it wasn't dull <laughs> brilliant well thanks for sharing that mark so we're going to get into oh well it's kind of the quick fire round of, of the podcast where we All get right. into kind of the, the geeky section so right. keep this keep this nice and punchy and and the first one is what's been your your this is a hard one your your favorite job and when i say job i'm talking about kind of show or you know piece of episodic entertainment or film or you know what's the one that stands out as your fave okay it was blade 2 uh, back in 2002 it then became battle of the masters series 6 of game of thrones and then more recently it might be toppled by tenet at dnic Excellent. Yeah, we've got funny. We had Jason Halverson on the last episode and he talked about Blade 2 as well. To that cast, not the first time that's come up. And obviously, Tenet with uh, Lorraine comes up as a, a huge one as well. Why do they stand out as your, your favorite jobs? So, so, Blade 2 quickly, because it was the first job I actually enjoyed watching the results of. Great. Um, Game of Thrones, because I, I remember when I watched the first season of that and I asked my girlfriend at the time, what did she think? And she was she looked a little bit like the, the, the queen who rode the dragons. She was like ridiculously platinum blonde hair. And she was she was really a, the Drago character. She was mm. she, he was with and, yeah. at Khaleesi. That's the one. Yeah. So and so I was kind of thinking to myself, oh, I wouldn't mind getting involved in that. And, and then eventually got the chance to do it. So it was on her recommendation, really. And nice. then Tenet because it's I, it, craftsmanship. I mean, I think it's a masterpiece of, of master craftsmen working on that one. And it's a, an absolute pleasure to, to have had the opportunity to be a part of a project of that caliber, I think. Brilliant. Three great examples and three great pieces. Of just, yeah, uh, yeah like content, the storytelling and 
I mean, the Battle of the Bastards is one of my favourite episodes of Game of Thrones, and I did enjoy that series. But yeah, Blade 2 got a lot of love for, uh, for a number of reasons. So what's been the most challenging job, then? Challenging show? Are we talking in complexity? We're going to have to shoot from the hip. I think... Yeah. I think I think a Hugo was a particularly difficult one. I think any stereo job was particularly hard. Hugo, because of the level of of precision that we needed to deliver to Martin Scorsese and Rob Legato. I mean, two of my favourite people in film. You know, Rob Legato, visual effects supervisor. For those who don't know, he's a genius. I, the level of precision was difficult, and the production was hampered simply because they shot with a stereo rig and one of the cameras wasn't, the centre wasn't correctly aligned, which meant every shot, every every plate was off a little bit and it meant camera tracking and everything else was, was, was made a horrendous nightmare. And I got brought in after leaving Escape Studios and because of my seniority, everybody else in the room was pretty much somebody I trained. Mm. So they basically saddled me with the difficult, complicated stuff and you know, I'm only human. <laughs> so uh, I, I did the best I could, stretch myself, learn a lot. That that was probably technically the hardest job I've ever had to do. There've been there's been other jobs that have been hard for other reasons, but yeah. technically that one. That was the one. Good is a, is a great example. And again, it's, I think it came up with your old colleague Fraser, Richard Fraser. But yeah, I'm sure he worked on that as well. I'm sure he mentioned you. He did. He was sitting yes. behind me to the left. I remember. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. I've got my facts right. Thank God. <laughs> So who's your VFX hero, Mark? Who's the, if you have one? Do you... Yeah, I tell you, you know, it came as a bit of a surprise trying to answer this. I'm going to say Spike Jones. I mean, look, I love George Menier, Fritz Lang, Greg Toland, you know, cinematographer from, from Citizen Kane, Albert Whitlock, Matt Painter, various Hitchcock films and The Thing, Rob Bartin, you know, Creature Effects Guy, Rob Zemeckis, official effects master, mastermind there, Rob Legato, who we just mentioned. But it's really the music video people I grew up with over the last 30 years. You know, it's the Michelle Gondry's and the Spike Jonze's and the David Finchers that I basically followed from the 80s all the way up to present. You know, so, you know, film-wise, James Cameron, I mean, I remember people going, who's, who's the best director? And I'm going, I think it's Cameron. And they're going, what about Spielberg? And I go... No, I think it's Cameron, you know, and uh, you know, I, th- I remember reading the issue of Cinefix in 1991 for Terminator 2 from cover to cover so many times before I actually saw the film that when I saw the film, I ruined the whole yeah. experience myself. And I guess I grew up thinking Industrial Light and Magic was just the best thing that ever happened to planet Earth, mm. you know, so that's basically it. But yeah, music video guys, Spike Johns, James Cameron, Spike Johns, Michelle Gondry, David Fincher, those are the guys that I really love. Yeah, that stuff was amazing. I remember having the Michael Rondry and uh, Spike Jones videos. They had these like, double video VHSs yeah. you could buy, and it had all Sabotage on there and oh, all the Fat Boy Slim stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, I remade Sabotage at university because I loved it so much. <laughs> we called it Dirty Cops, and we were just running around playing cops and robbers to old funk tunes. But, um, but yeah, I love I, I love his work, and yeah, still remember being obsessed with it. So yeah, great, great show. So it gets even harder now. So what is the best, in your opinion, VFX shot or, or, or piece of animation you've ever seen? When, when did uh, you ask go, that's insane. So look, I, I, well, I grew up watching Empire Strikes Back hundreds and hundreds of times. And I remember I made friends with, with a guy at school because I called him around to ask him if he knew how they did the shot where the Tauntaun 
that where Han Solo's Tauntaun comes running back into the Hoff bunker after unsuccessfully finding Luke. And he, so he returns back into the rebel base and you can see the Tauntaun is going behind things and everything. And I was totally perplexed about how and how they were able to achieve that shot. And I must have been, mm. I was at school, 33, so it would have been, I would have been 11 and it would have been 1983 and we probably, or 12, when, whenever the, the VHS came out. Now, so that, that definitely was one that I grew up with. Now, I also ran a few minute screen studies program each day as part of my course at Escape Studios and as part of that pedagogy. And I, I was, you know, it was in that course I championed that now famous mirror shot from Contact where, you know, the girl's basically in the mirror and you don't know she's in the mirror until she reaches the bathroom and then you realise you've been looking at her reflection all the time, which I, I think is an outstanding... I mean, that's Rob Zemeckis again, you know, hat off to him. And I also love that contrazoom from Poltergeist when the mother, you just get that feeling that she's, she's in a dream and she's sort of running on the spot and she can never arrive at destination. You know, that yeah. horrible dream we all have. I love that. It absolutely sort of knocks me for six. And then more recently, I've been thinking about The Abyss because every time oh, I yeah. see that film, right, and I see Ed Harris submerged in his helmet in liquid oxygen, it gets me every time that, how do you do that? How do they do that? You know, he's literally got a helmet full of liquid on, in there and he's apparently breathing it okay because it's liquid oxygen, but how do they do that? Yeah, no, so um, so anyway, that. That, and then finally, of course, when it comes to the films, you can't beat the thing. Nothing can beat John Carpenter's The Thing. So that's, that's basically where I, 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 I sit with that. Yeah, the Petri dish scene. For the ages, isn't it? Oh, I remember the petri dish scene. Oh my god, it's insane! It's so good. <laughs> the best. Don't get me started. And the same with Robocop. Like, whenever people start talking about films of my formative years, I could turn a whole podcast episode purely based on my favorite movies. But that, that, that's that's a great, a great example. First nod to the abyss on the podcast, as well. I should note as well, which is uh, a crime that it's not been mentioned yet. Such a great movie. There's a lot of good stuff going on there. So you've probably you've probably touched on this in your last example, but is there a show that stands out? You don't have to have worked on it, like one that stands out as a masterclass, like literally a pinnacle of the art form. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting one. It's a difficult one to answer because I'm not actually even a massive fan of like visual effects movies. I like a good film, regardless. But I'm gonna say Terminator Two, right? Because I, as I said, I ruined it for myself because I read that Cinefix issue cover to cover so many mm. times because I've seen it because it displayed, for the first time, it displayed so much digital comp techniques. And it's just the restraint, I think, and, and use of visual effects, uh, that it wasn't splattered all over the screen. You know, it was, it was used delicately and sparingly and cleverly and, and inventively. That I, I just think to myself that, that, is, that it doesn't distract from the, the overall thrust of the narrative either. It doesn't, it's, the tail doesn't wag the dog. So I really, I really respect T2. I'm not saying it's the best, but it's the restraint in which the filmmakers use the tools that I'm super impressed by. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. And you could argue that if they had gone all out with the effects, that maybe they wouldn't have, the film might not have dated so well. Yeah, because I think it really stands up now, doesn't it? Because they didn't over-egg it, but they used yeah. the techniques still. I mean, you just see how, how, how kind of the quantity of visual effects that found itself on the screen at, after the year 2000, once we had the ability to do digital comps. But, you know, back then when they were reliant on optical printers and, and such in order to composite, you know, there wasn't, you had to be more sparing in your, in your choices, you know, so 
I think, you know, it's an era that's bygone now because it's just too easily and readily available for us to solve every problem with, with a digital visual effects effect. Absolutely. And the last question on the, the geeky section is the best character design. So what's your, your favorite character realized, Mark? Does it have to be a character? Does it have to be like a creature or can it be human? It can be human. Listen, it's Mad Max. I don't don't think people realise how good those series of films are. I mean, does anybody anybody know that every object in that film, even down to the steering wheel, in every car, it has a backstory? That the detail that he has gone in, and and what's really weird is that you think it's just this weird sort of landscape where oddball things happen, but in actual fact, there is so much happening in in the narrative behind that film. So I I love Mad Max. For my money... Rocky is the greatest character to ever grace the silver screen. I don't think there's anything better than than a Rocky movie and that, and that character. If you ever need to get in a good mood, watch a Rocky movie. You know, we could have a debate about what ones to watch and what ones good and stuff, but by the end of it, you end up just going, let's just watch them all. Exactly. Watch them all in a row. Even Rocky V. Even Rocky V, <laughs> you know what I mean? Tommy Gunn. <laughs> Even Rocky V. Even wow. Rocky V, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give it a pass. I'll give it a pass. <laughs> right. So we're going to get into the advice bit now, which will bring us bring us on home. Uh, and the best piece of advice you've ever received, Mark. I mean, you give a lot of great advice as, as, as a man in industry, but what's the best piece of advice you've had? There's a lot rattling up upstairs there. I don't know if I picked, if I can pick the right one, but one that I remember well is if you love something, then you better find a way of expressing it. Otherwise, you will forever find yourself living out that fantasy in real life and becoming a pain in the ass to everybody around you. Mm-hmm. It's, they, they compared it to a tube of toothpaste. If it doesn't come out the way it should, it will find another way to get out there. Yeah. And, and that, one, that one is something that I think is like, yeah, you know, you've got to take that one to heart because it's not just about you. I mean, you, just, you, know, you don't want to be a, some weird narcissist or something around people, you know, your wife or your kids or your best friends are just annoying them about how good you could have been and yeah. that sort of thing. Could and, then I, and, then, and then there's a Neil Simon quote, which I really like from the film Biloxi Blues. And he says, once you start compromising your thoughts, you're auctioning yourself as a candidate, you're auctioning yourself off as a candidate for mediocrity. Oh, which sounds a bit wordly, right? But that, that one's settled in, I think. I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that makes you realise what side you're on, your politics and, and, and where you stand as a writer, really. So I do love that. And then, you know, again, in, along with that, I've also got a piece of art I bought that says only the mediocre are always at their best, which I think is a great, a great line. <laughs> I love that. Well, you, should all, you should always fight against mediocrity. I completely agree. And, and it's yeah. all about being the best version of yourself or living to, you know, living to your full potential, or reaching your full potential. Absolutely. I'm going to borrow the toothpaste uh, analogy. That's brilliant <laughs> for future. I wish it was more succinct and salient, but it's a bit more. It says so much. It says so much. <laughs> yeah. So this is the famous imposter syndrome question, Mark. Have you ever felt out of your depth or that you're faking it till you make it? Well, I mean... Yeah, this, this came up in one of our podcasts, didn't it? I mentioned it there. No, it's actually in relation to... When I remember when I said it, it was in relation to the amount of people the industry let in based on, like, privilege. I mean, you check their CVs and see who is the relevant experience to be there. You know, it's because everybody's so insecure in their positions that they look to shine a light on somebody else 
that they can throw under the bus. And it's all down to this whole idea they've got imposter syndrome and they don't want to be found out. You know, it's one of the reasons, I'm going to say it, it's one of the reasons that people enjoy having a black guy in the company so that they have escape blame, blame stuff on whenever the shit goes bad. So it's definitely something that's prevalent. Have I ever felt it? Yeah, I've, I've had it a few times, definitely. When you were just put into a situation to do something you'd rather not have to do and you didn't have time to prepare. So yeah, yeah, I've had that imposter syndrome. I'd say, I'd say most can happen obviously when you start teaching for the first time. And and if you get put into a, if you get promotion, you get put into a position that you're stepping into for the first time, you can feel it. Generally speaking, I, I generally yeah, generally speaking, I'm all right with that. But but what it is is that I notice that everybody else suffers from it much more than I do. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely degrees of it, isn't there? But yeah. I think everybody, if everybody has it within them for sure, some more than more than others. So building on that, what advice would you give to your teenage self? So we've done aliens, now you're going back in time. Listen, I, I, I would tell myself to outline every film you've ever watched and don't rely on Sight and Sound magazine as a cheat sheet. I would say that. I met Richard Iowady did it, I didn't, and he's, he's reaping the rewards. I should have taken the placement on that first 3D design course being held at Summer College, I think yeah. about that. I should have bought a house when there was a recession on. Yeah, I should sure. I should have kept writing every day and I should have never stopped drawing. Like when you're at art college and you're surrounded by artists, you know, everybody's doing it and you know, you don't think twice about it. But when you get into the industry, it's full of a bunch of kids that nobody can really say any of them tick the boxes of requirements that was initially outlined to become a visual effects artist. You know, I've trained very few have got the kind of come into this with the kind of background grounding training that you were encouraged to have. And I trained, I've trained like nearly 700 artists. And I have to say only two of them I've met. I trained under 700 compositors, let's say, and only about two of them are artists. And I live with one of them now. And I think one of the other big things I would have told myself, <laughs> it's not quite, quite advice, but it's more regret, is that I should never have left MTV. But my boss mm. was creepy and a bit inappropriate. So I do have regrets. Regrets make of the man. They do. They do. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't have the Mark Pinheiro we know today without that journey in many ways. So this next question almost blends with the last one. So feel free to, to pass if you feel you've answered it already, Mark. But okay. what do you wish you had known when you were starting out? Well, so look, the thing I discovered was that you didn't need to know all those areas I trained up in, that I listed in order to get a job. Pretty much nobody knew barely any of the skills that you were supposed to know going into the industry. You know, what I discovered is that the industry is a chance as paradise, paradise and it still is. You know, when I tell people just how much I learned to prepare for a job in film, they laugh at me because half of those requirements, it seems, were designed to deter people from having a go. You know, they didn't expect anybody to know half of the things, those things that they, they listed. But if you didn't, then they always had a reason to refuse you a job at the interview, for instance. So it was a way of, it was just a gate. It was a way of the gatekeepers letting people in and, and keeping people out. But what I discovered was if you were, you know, if you're a Caucasian in the industry, then none of that, none of those requirements seem to matter. They'd let you in and they'd train you up or give you a chance to train yourself up once you were in there. So, you know, basically I went a little bit overboard in my learning, but I don't regret learning what I did, not at all, because I wasn't just looking for a job. I was training to become a filmmaker. I was investing in myself. 
yeah, it was another facet of everything you've talked about. Again, another another string to the bow, isn't it? The acting, the screenwriting, the, yeah. the artistry, the craft. I guess another thing is is when you drop your guard, you know, when you go into a place like this, all respectful, you drop your guard to become compliant and polite and hardworking and easy to get along with so that you can avoid being saddled with the stereotype of being a lazy, uneducated black man, you know, really and truly all of that. I found it was just another ruse and another means of control to allow you to be manipulated and exploited without putting up any fight. You know, make yourself into this amiable character and you allow yourself to be pushed over and you give the people around you the opportunity and a status to be your bully. So would I have gone into the industry a little bit more, less... Did I, I wish I was as humble as I was, or could I have been less humble? I wish I was less humble going into the industry. Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say by the sounds of it. Yeah, take yeah. a bit more charge. Take, we, a bit. Yeah, take a bit of charge, stand up for yourself, straighten your back, mm. you know what I mean? And don't let everyone push you around. Yeah, it goes back to the brave being brave, being, yeah. as you said at the start of the session, session, <laughs> start of the podcast. <laughs> uh, it's not therapy for both of us. What show or time in your career did you learn the most and why, Mark, do you think? When was the okay. big learning epiphany for you? Yeah, I mean, there's been, as you can hear already, there's been a lot. Without a doubt, this has to be Escape Studios. So, I mean, I, you hear people saying, oh, I learned loads from the people around me and I had this guy and he took me on as a mentor and he helped me out. I can tell you, nobody helps out black people in these companies. It's bad enough that you're there, right? And that... You're not, they're not, once you, you know, when they don't even want you there and they're not going to help you to get ahead of them by helping you out, right? So they'll pretend to help you, for instance, when you're really, when, you know, really they're doing their best to tell you a whole load of shit in order to sabotage you so that they can show off to their friends afterwards about how they got one over the stupid Negro over there. After being pushed out of the industry via a smear campaign, I took a job that nobody wanted at Escape Studios in a career that was looked upon as a, as a job to losers, you know, nobody liked teaching. It was where you went because you, you failed to make it in, in the real world. So I took on a job and basically turned a frown into a smile. Mm. You know, I taught myself to learn how to learn. You know, I studied and practiced every night in order to lecture the next day, perfected my, te my compositing techniques and my teaching techniques. There weren't many courses of its kind around at the time, so you already held a position on the world map, as I mentioned before, in all of VFX courses. And as I said, I trained up hundreds of people and ended up flooding the market with good, cheap products that eventually brought down the overall price per head companies were willing to pay for an artist, which pissed off a lot of the existing mm -hmm. market, I think. And everyone, I remember when people were complaining about all the escapees coming out. And a lot of people took off abroad to go and work in Canada and Australia and New Zealand to maintain their, their paycheck they wanted. But to be honest, I just saw that as revenge, a sweet revenge for getting rid of me in the first place. And uh, a revenge that benefited a lot of people by the sounds of it. Yeah. They, plus uh, trainees. Yeah. yeah that, that, to do great things. They got a lot out of that anger. Six years of anger there. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see some, some benefit for sure. So I'm going, the last few questions really tackle yeah, entry-level talent trying to get in and in the industry itself. And, and the question is, what would you change about the VFX animation and games industry overall? 
Yeah, so look, I mean, I mean, I, there's a lot to talk about here. This could take up too much time, but I did write a 30-page manifesto that I think it might have even swung by you at some yes. point last year, um, which, you know, recognised various things, you know, how we might be able to work as without having a union or a bill of rights for artists and such. But, yeah, there's a lot of changes to be done. But, you know, it's it's a very tricky one. And, and, and to be honest, I, I want to try and keep it positive because I know that I've got a lot of negative things that people might, might say I've got to say but but I would say that at the moment there is some change happening for the better and, and let's just see how things go for now but yeah workers rights I think and recognizing the artists and putting the artists needs first and foremost I think is a really big thing that we need to pay more attention to yeah. um, mental health and, and for various reasons I mean the list is is long it's especially mental health is the main thing now I think that yeah. we need to put a high on the agenda Cool. Thank you, Mark. No, that's uh, and actually the workers' rights piece and the unionisation piece came up on the last episode with Jason. So it's uh, theme, the themes building on on this podcast for sure. Yeah. So, question twenty is the industry advice question. One thing we can do as a step toward oh, get my words out. One thing we can do as a step towards a more inclusive and diverse industry. One well, step. How long have we got? Honestly? Well, it is just one step. I'm sure honestly. there are other steps, but just give us one, Mark. I mean, look, I, I've, I've written quite a lot here, but I think that the problem is that, you know, if we want to try and answer a question like that, then we need to kind of fix, we need to, we need to kind of identify what the problem is in the first place. And, you know, one thing I realise is a lot of people kind of ask these sort of questions, but it's including a friend of mine, Daniel Mark Miller, who does the VFX podcast show, he co-hosts oh, it. Yeah. And he yeah. asks a lot of questions and, you know, his heart's in the right place, but even he doesn't get the problem. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to be asking so many damn questions all the time, you know, would he? He'd mm. know. But it feels like what it is is we're all skirting around what seems to me to be the obvious issue, right? Which is, and it just may be time that we just sort of spell it out, you know. So the post-production industry, historically, has long been regarded as a safe haven for British nationals white people Caucasians you know I hear people complaining when they see me they feel let down that someone like me has been allowed in in the first place like it's, it's disappointed them you know, on top of that it's long been a safe haven for nerds you know those sort of shrinking violet types that are too scared the real world because various people blacks and whoever else have, have robbed their country of its culture and ruined it for everybody you know and they're surprised to see person made it into one of these companies because a they're thinking how on earth did you get in here when secretly we've always been trying to stop you guys from coming through and b which is the real crux of the problem which is that you know you got in it the only reason they're thinking you got into the industry is is because of some kind of equal opportunity scheme that is taking the chance away from a perfectly qualified white person which is a unicorn, in my opinion, there, you know, to take the role in favour of an unqualified black person instead. So the industry as a whole have taken it upon themselves to go against policy and make sure that they make it hard or impossible for black people to get a job. And if you do, and, you know, all they will then all rise up and do their bit to prove that blacks that a black person didn't deserve to be there in the first place. You know, the, the, the irony, of course, 
is that now companies are being more pro-equal opportunities for towards ethnic minorities. So now that really is happening now, post-2020, why isn't everybody more up in arms, you know? I mean, they were when it wasn't happening, and now, and now everybody's okay about it now that it is. You know, it's, it's bizarre. And you're not going to find people talking about it too much because if any one of them open their mouths now in dissent, companies are trying to achieve, they're scared now that they'll be branded a racist. And yet the vast majority of people you meet in there carry and advocate a Britain first or UKIP sentiment in that, com- in that industry. You know, it's because, it's because they all knew they were going to take the piss, claiming they had to get, they had a reason to get up in arms about it until the time came when they had to accept that that fair is fair. And that date seemed to just be 2020. They, you know, they, they had their fun up until they realised that they couldn't. And that now they have to basically quiet down and stop their misbehaviour. You know, if you don't believe that, if people don't believe that, or you don't, you've never experienced that as a black person, or you can't relate, then you've never probably gone after something that, you know, a British white national believes he's more entitled to than you. You know, it's okay if you're out there and you're a dustman or a security guard or London transport night worker, because, you know, doing that, you're in your place. But if you dare to challenge a system, or if you yearn for something more, then you're an upstart and they'll look to put you back in your place, you know, and they revel in doing it on a daily basis. Some of them, you know, have, they have a name, I don't know a way to say this, they have a name for what they do, which is basically called fucking up the blacks. They enjoy it like it's a game. And the majority of them think that black people are so stupid that even after all these years, we don't know what's going on because we're too stupid to notice when they're doing it, because they're so cunning and they're so wily that we're too stupid to outsmart the fox. So lot, so, so long as you see it happening, so sorry, so long as you can't see it happening, then they will continue to do it because as far as they're concerned, you deserve it for being too stupid to notice what they're doing to you. So, you know, from what I, what I can see, from what you hear and from what you've learned growing up, people of this country have been doing this towards black people and fighting this cold war for decades you know and it begins in nurseries schools if they fail you you know make you feel you failed yourself then you give up without them having to do anything and that happens to a lot of black people out there from a young age they they feel you know despair in, in thinking that they can make it anywhere but they will do whatever they can do to force you under and force you out if they can and they'll do all of that to make sure you don't hit of them and especially you don't become their boss because they're scared that if you obtain a position of power over them, then we'll do back to them what they've been doing to us all these years. At all costs, they do not want to relinquish their power hold when it comes to status in a society. At all costs, they will fight to maintain their position as this idea of being the master race. Now, honestly, for any black person listening who's trying to work out why their lives are a bit of a mess, you know, look at it from this perspective and from within this context and tell me if this doesn't make sense. Well said, Mark. And yeah, yeah I, can't, I, can't, I can't even follow up on that. I think I completely hear that. It's one of the reasons why Access VFX exists and particularly to the next generation coming up. I think the, 
the importance of role models and mentors and you know you know almost having a, a support structure that 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 mitigates that otherness that sets them off off track does that make sense i'll, I'll put it very crudely yeah it's hard finding the words to say these, these sort of things yeah. to be honest but yes I, I appreciate that you that you appreciate it there you go so i'm going to finish with the career advice question mark because i'm very aware of, of your time and and the running the running time of this very lengthy podcast which is lengthy <laughs> for good reason is the, the golden nugget of, of advice for anyone trying to get into industry if you had it's the one go-to Mark Pinheiro advice, golden ticket, you want to drop for people? I would first and foremost say land on your own moon. If you can do something yourself and you can start up your own thing like that, that chap who, who that's a young black man who died last week, who started that music channel, I can't remember his name. Oh, Jamal Edwards. Jamal, yeah. man. Like, if you can do your own thing, then do that because there's a world of opportunity out there for you. And after... If you haven't got, you know, that inclination, go and get a job in the industry. But first and foremost, I would say land on your own moon. That's where I would direct people first. Land on your own moon. That's a great, that's a great place to uh, to leave it and, and, and close close the vault on land on your own moon. Another great T-shirt slogan. We're getting quite a lot of these on these podcasts. I'm going to rack them all up and start merchandising. because <laughs> uh, we, need, we, need, we need funding. Access, access slogans, sure. Well, I'll do, I could do the design for you. Do that for free. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> Mark, pleasure chatting to you, man. That was uh, that was as candid and as frank. I went beyond expectations. So thank you for everything you've brought to the podcast, Mark. That's all right. It's, it's a lovely opportunity. And, you know, to be able to start feeling you can speak about these things without fear, apprehension. You know, obviously there's a lot of fear of consequence that you think is going to come back on you for saying these sort of things. But... You know, I'm a 50 year old man now. It's time, I'm a big boy. You know, it's time to basically start putting your voice out and saying what needs to be said. So, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Mark. And I'm excited to see what what's next now that you're a you're a master, master of the arts. That's uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Life begins at 50, right? I've got to tell you, so am I. I'm very excited about my life ahead. I really, really am. I, I feel yeah, it's great. It's great cool. to be here. It's great to be alive. Well, I'll continue to follow your story, Mark, as I'm sure we all will. And is there anything you want to plug, shout out, any final words you want to kind of leave our listeners with before we officially close the vault? And this um, episode? Not really. No, no, no shameless plugs. I've got a few more podcasts coming up soon, but I'm sure that people catch wind of those on LinkedIn and such. But yeah, if I'll be a little bit more talking, I will see what happens. We'll see what happens. It's a clear road ahead. Well, I'm glad the Access VFX podcast got in there first. We're honoured to have Thank you on. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Take good care. And you. Take care. See See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. Episode 13 of the Access VFX podcast. What a conversation. It's not often I'm rendered speechless on the pod, but Mark's story certainly had me tongue-tied. Important messages, real talk, eloquently put. Land on your own moon. Now there's our new t-shirt quote right there. Before you go, a couple of things. Please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, subscribe and leave us a review if you fancy it. And most importantly, please get involved with our Foundry-sponsored global e-mentoring program. If you're in the UK, USA, Canada, Australia or New Zealand, you can sign up for free to get an industry mentor or be a mentor yourself to folks aspiring or just getting started in VFX animation or games. 
go to www.accessvfx.org forward slash mentors and change someone's life. Thank you, Mark, for being a truly inspiring guest. Thanks to Tom Box for producing it and for the graphics. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Come join me next week where we speak to another amazing member of our community. Thank you.